Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This concludes our reading of God's word. Greetings to you, especially on behalf of Grace Bible Church just down the road. Your brothers and sisters there uh, rejoice in the gospel and rejoice in Christ and rejoice in his work and witness here at Kingsway. And it is a pleasure for me and real honor to stand at this pulpit and to herald the gospel here. So thankful for Matt and his friendship and really the friendship of our churches that uh, we are united in Christ here in Midlothian to testify to Jesus. Which we're going to do now is we open his book. So as you're there, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. And before I begin formally, at least in looking at the word, would you pray with me once more? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you for that word and reminder, again, through excellent song, that we don't come because we are worthy. We come because we are unfaithful, but you are worthy. And you are faithful to who you are, a God of mercy, that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But you, our holy God, you will by no means clear the guilty. And our clearing and our mercy for the ungodly is found in Christ. And this is our great rejoicing and what we boast in. Remind us of this, remind your church of this as we turn now to your word. Spirit, we need your help. Father, we wanna see your name holy among us. We want your kingdom to come, your will to be done on this whole earth. And we know that it will be done even as things transpire as we think about this year of things we would not have chosen, but we trust your wisdom. Uh, We pray your will would be done in us with perfect conformity to your word which includes our humbling ourselves before you, uh, which we do now. We pray for our daily bread. We need to the bread of your word that now, that it would be nourishing to our soul, that is that our hearts would be receptive to it, which reminds us to ask for forgiveness, forgive us our debts, as we know you have done in Christ. May we know this, and so might we then show that grace to others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and do that even now by strengthening our spirit in the inner man, making us whole through the proclamation of your word. Do a work for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Probably the most most vivid memory I have from seminary, uh, sadly, is not a happy one. We had come into chapel that morning. We had chapel two times a week, and I believe it was a Thursday and as you came in, it was an auditorium about this size, and it was just hushed. Uh, it was quiet. Something was different. There, there seemed to be some murmuring going on among the students. Something was up. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, the president of the seminary, he then came forward to address us, specifically to notify us that one of our longtime professors, one of the pastors in the church, had been engaged in an extramarital affair for years. We were shocked, dumbfounded. I mean, what can you say? This man who is teaching God's word in our seminary halls every day of the week almost, and then on Sundays, he was leading several hundred people as he preached a sermon each week. And then you have to think, how in the world does that happen? How can someone be so in God's word, teaching God's word, being so used of God, and yet behind the scenes be in such sin. It's hypocrisy at its highest. And the sobering thing is, though, the terrifying thing is, is that none of us are immune from this, apparently. None of us are immune from such failures and temptations. Indeed, everyone should take heed lest he fall. So how might we do that? How would we protect ourselves from such failure and hypocrisy? Well, we're going to turn now to Matthew chapter 6. And what we're going to see here is this idea. How do we guard ourselves from hypocrisy? You keep yourself from hypocrisy by setting your sights on God and his reward alone. In other words, the integrity of your faith is shown by who you are when no one is looking but God. The integrity of who you are is who you are when you're only before God and no one else can see. That's true worship. 
That's a worship that's been purged of hypocrisy. And so we do that. Keep yourself from hypocrisy by setting your sights on the unseen God and his reward alone. And we'll see that unfold is in the text. We have a warning that comes first there in verse one, and then it's followed by three tests, three tests by which you can discern whether or not that's true about you, whether your worship is riddled with hypocrisy or no. Well, let's come first to the test, and it's this, beware, beware of this, others' estimation of you tempts you toward hypocrisy. That's what we find in verse one. Others' estimation of you tempts you toward hypocrisy. The first step to protecting yourself from religious hypocrisy is you got to realize the lurking danger in it. And so verse one begins with this warning from King Jesus. And he starts it off and says, beware. That is, watch out. Be careful. Look out. This is dangerous. Well, what's the threat? What's the danger? And in a word, it's hypocrisy. And though he has yet to use the word in our verse, verse one, it's gonna come up again and again. You're gonna see it in verse two. You're gonna see it in verse five. You're gonna see that word hypocrisy again in verse 16. But what we see here in verse one is that before he goes and names it, he describes it. So let us hear and heed the warning here of King Jesus Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Again, danger, watch out. Danger of what? What's at risk? He says, practicing your righteousness. This is what the danger is. Well, what does that mean? And how is that dangerous? Well, first of all, the sense of practice here is merely just to be doing something, namely doing your righteousness. And this has nothing to do with, in the sense, practice, as in practice makes perfect. It's just the very things you do. Though it's the things you do that are the habit and then pattern of your life, the things that characterize what you do. And what should pattern your life is doing righteousness. Well, if it does, you need to be careful. Well, what righteousness here are we talking about? What kind of things are we supposed to be doing? Well, just simply, when you're talking about doing righteousness, you're just doing the things that are right. You're doing the things that are in accord with God's will. The things you should be doing. That's righteousness. Now that's a pretty broad term, isn't it then? That's a pretty wide net he casts. But then in particular, we see that Jesus targets three common activities of personal worship or devotion in what follows. Namely, charitable giving, prayer, and fasting. Because understand, the Judaism of Jesus' day in particular, they esteemed these practices oh so highly. These were the most basic components of personal worship. Again, giving, prayer, and fasting. And what becomes clear is that even in Jesus' kingdom, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 6. He's giving really the the ethics, the, the way that kingdom people live. And even as he talks about these things, he assumes, he presumes the people in his kingdom will continue to do them. That is, we will continue to give and pray and fast, even as part of the new covenant. But so it is, he then warns us that there's then this lurking danger because there's that corrupting power that still lurks in our hearts, doesn't it? That can turn even the best and most sincere acts of devotion and turn them into prideful deeds done for not worship to God, but that we might worship ourselves. That's the warning. Why? 
Because those deeds done, those righteous deeds, they are done hypocritically. They were done not to show God how devoted we are to him. They were done so that others might praise us, that others might see and think we are godly or righteous or serious. In other words, it's idolatry. It's self-worship. Because back to Jesus' warning, note again what he says there in verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness, doing those righteous deeds before other people in order to be seen by them. So this then you see, this is what distinguishes between a truly righteous deed done in devotion to God and a hypocritical deed done in devotion or praise of self. What's the difference? It's about motive. It might look the exact same on the outside, but the inside, the heart, the motive, the, the purpose is totally different. For it is with the hypocrite that his motivation, whatever he does, it's not because God sees, but he does it because men see. Because others will see and then think better of him for it. In other words, the hypocrite does the the, the self-worshipper does the externally right thing, but from an internally wrong and corrupt motive. He does it to be seen and acknowledged by others. This then forms the crucial difference that helps us reconcile and understand an earlier command of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, namely in chapter 5, verse 16. I'm sure you've heard this verse, you know it well where he commands us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. <laughs> so there's a sense, right? Jesus, to let our light shine, he wants us to do good things and to people to see that. But why? So they would go back and give praise to the father, not esteem you. So again, you're dealing at motive, aren't we? You're dealing at the, the heart, what's the desire one seeks to honor God in the good that they do, to have God praised, to have God glorified, to have God prized. The other does it so that they will be. And Jesus warns about the consequence of this false worship is back there to verse one of chapter six. He says, for then, if you do it to be seen by men, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Your reward, the value before God, it's gone. Bankrupt, emptied, useless. It's a waste before your father who is in heaven. And so that's why Jesus warns us, beware, be careful, watch out. Because there's this threat, the threat is so, and why he says to beware, because the threat is so subtle. It's so insidious. Again, namely because on the outside, on the outside it might all look the same. So if you can imagine two people here, you, you got one guy praying over here, reading his Bible, and you, and you got a lady over here praying and reading her Bible, on the outside it looks identical. Both appear to be sincerely praising and worshiping God. But it very well could be that one might actually be worshiping himself while the other is pleasing God in her devotion. The point is, on the outside, it looks the exact same. So what's the difference? We've gotten to it. It's the heart. It's our motive. It's why we do the things we do, the love of God or the praise and love of men. 
So Christian, churchgoer, righteous person, religious person, beware. Lord Jesus tells you, be careful. Watch out. The abiding pride in your heart so easily turns us after the praise of men. Even when on the outside we're trying to do the right, right thing. And that's really part of this risk and reward or really the robbery of hypocrisy. And it comes down to the issue of do you have a changed heart? So why do you do the righteous things that you do? Why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why? That's the answer that we're looking for in this text. Because this much is clear. If you do it to get our attention so that we would see and so that we would praise and commend, understand then, no matter how much you give, no matter how many zeros are on that check, so to speak, no matter how long you pray and put it on social media, to him it is worthless before the Father if it's done to be seen by men. Do not let a self-righteous heart rob you of the Father's reward. This is Jesus' warning to us. And so now what follows, he gives us three tests to see is our worship hypocritical or no. And the first test here we see in verses two to four, it's this, it comes to this question. Are you willing to give if only God sees you? Are you willing to give if only God sees? So the troubling thing is, I think for all of us, you hear this text and this warning and you might think, wow, it sounds like hypocritical worship would be an easy thing to do. And, to, and the sad thing is to do it and not even know you're doing it, not even realize it. And that's right. That's why we must humbly test our hearts. And so here's the first one. Why do we give? Trying to get at the motive that's in our heart. So now we turn to verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, or more literally, the expression is something like, when you do mercy, and doing mercy, again, that could be a broad term. It can entail many different things. But to this time, it'd become an expression to mean specifically that you give to those in need, probably especially to the poor. So when you're going to do that, when you're going to go out and give to the needy, he notes, sound no trumpet before you, verse two, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. In other words, as you give, don't toot your own horn, literally, right? Don't draw attention to yourself as you do it. Now, whether or not the trumpet blowing was a literal thing or whether this is just a metaphor, we do know that at times when donations were made in the system of Judaism at the time, say, were made in the temple, the whole enterprise would be a very public thing for all to see. If you recall, remember the story of when Jesus observes the widow who gives her two mites? Remember this? It opens like this in Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And it seems from that text that they're doing so in such a way to be seen, right? That they would not be missed. Whatever the mechanism for doing so, don't seek the attention of others as you give. Why not? Because that's what the hypocrites do. Verse two again. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Again, why do they do it as it goes on? That they may be praised by others. This is the very purpose and motive of the hypocrite, to be praised, to be prized and exalted and esteemed by others. And so we've been dancing around it, but since it's in the text here, let's properly define finally what a hypocrite is. The word hypocrites here in the Greek describes the actor on a stage, the one who understands he's before an audience. And indeed, that describes well these pious givers, doesn't it? Who are drawing all kinds of attentions to themselves. Why? So others would see how generous they are, right? How sacrificial they are, how righteous they are, how good they are. To give like that in so much, wow, it's astounding. They gave, but they made sure people saw. They gave, not because they loved God, apparently, but because they loved the praise of men. As it says, they may be praised by others. This is their motive. That's their purpose. And the astonishing thing that comes next is that if that's what they want, they can have it, Jesus says. They can have all of it that they want, but that's all they can have. That's all they're going to get. Notice the end of verse 2. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Well, maybe it works out. They got what they wanted. But they're stuck with men's empty praise. So what's the remedy? Don't give? No, probably not. Verse 3. But when you do give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So first, you hear the expectation Kingdom people are going to give when you give. It's not if, but it's when. But here's how you do it. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, what is this about? So I'm to write a check, but I can only do it with one hand. Or do I need to make sure that one hand's in my pocket as I click, you know, the link on the website to then submit payment to the church? No, no, no. This is a metaphor, isn't it? It's a picture. In short, the point is, if your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing, of course, no one else would. You're trying to be subtle. You're trying to keep it a secret. And then Jesus explains the irrationale why. Look at verse four. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there, you heard it. What, we do this so our giving would be in secret, kept hidden. Why? To guard your heart from seeking the praise of men. That is, if you give in secret, if you keep it hidden, the only one who can know is the all-knowing God. And so it is, if they give in that way, you can be looking for nothing from men, no praise, no acknowledgement, no name on the side of the building. You're just doing it because you love God. And so we hear this promise, this glorious promise that our loving father delights and rewards such devotion and obedience and faith. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, what a contrast with the trumpet blowers who give so people can see them. They got the reward, they got what they wanted, but they lost the far greater reward of the Father. And so now test your own heart, test your own devotion. Do you give when no one but God is looking? 
or maybe the first question really must be, do you give it all? This would include to your local church, of course, here at Kingsway. But the focus here is of deeds of mercy. Do you give your money? Do you give your time? Do you give your energy? Do you give your resources to those who have needs, frankly, and those that might need them? But then if you got that covered in some sense, we go to the next level and ask, well, why do you do that? Are you more prone to give when others are looking? And if so, you just got to ask, why do you think that is? Now, Rick, are you saying I should always give anonymously then? No, I don't think that's the prescription here that's necessary. And frankly, I think that question misses the mark of this whole point in the text. Remember what this is about. This is about your heart motive and motivation about why you give. It's about if you give and why you do so. Why or why not? Because we gathered this much, God holds out a great reward to those who worship him through giving and generosity. I think because we in no other way so greatly imitate our generous God in the gospel in his sacrifice and giving. Just as Paul urged us to generosity, you remember this in the example of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, for you know the grace, gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. We are generous because Christ was first generous to us, aren't we? And that's the heart of true worship that knows that grace and can't keep it in. That's why we give, whether anyone sees or no. That's the first test. The next test comes to this question. Are you willing to pray if only God hears? Are you willing to pray if only God hears? This is the second test of our devotion, verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites, the pretenders. Remember the actors who see they're on a stage. They have a microphone so everyone can hear. Those who are not talking to God, they're more about talking to others. That is namely to be seen and heard by others, to appear devoted, to appear holy, pious, respectable. Listen to how Jesus describes the hypocrites going on in verse five. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why do you think they pray especially at those places? says that they may be seen by others. They bother praying in places where they're gonna be seen and heard. In other words, why waste an excellently crafted prayer if only God's gonna hear it? In that case, there'd be no one to impress. Or maybe if they don't see me praying, they'll assume I don't pray and I'd best pray conspicuously out in the open to be seen by all. You see, especially in this religion of the time, there were these expected times of prayer in this culture, much like the, much like the Muslim culture today. So at morning and evening sacrifices, you were expected to pray, and at the third and ninth hours. And so as you anticipate your day and you look at your calendar, you might think, wow, if I went on that errand about the ninth hour and ended up at that street corner, wouldn't it be convenient for everyone to see me pray? Except it's not hypothetical. You did this very thing. So everyone knew how devoted you were. Again, why? Because they want to be seen by men most of all. 
to that, Jesus then gives them some comfort, so to speak, at the end of verse five. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. If that's what you want, you can have it. But nothing more. And when he says they've received their reward, this expression was a, a common saying in the marketplace. To have received your reward means that, means that you received full payment. The account's settled. The deal's been done. There remains the promise of nothing more. They got what they wanted, the praise of men, but that's all they would, go, they would get. But Jesus holds out the promise of something so much better for those in his kingdom. They will not be two-faced, a duplicitous prayer about God. No, they will pray in such a way that only God hears, and that's enough. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, pray to God at a time and a place when only God will hear. Where only God would see you praying. Is that because if others see you or hear you, then your prayer doesn't count, it's nullified? No. Again, that's not the point. Again, what is this kingdom and king about? It's about the heart. It's about a changed motive. It's about the motivation. Why do you pray? And here's the point. If you're praying in a closed room, if you're by yourself, you're in secret, where no one but God would see and hear you, again, there's no one to impress there's nothing to be gained or accomplished beyond what the unseen God who sees in secret might wish to work in your world and in your own heart. And in that way, prayer so especially shows itself as that supreme practice of devotion and faith, doesn't it? Faith in what? Faith, a trust in God, that God will do what? Well, here we read, but when you pray, verse six, go in your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. What are you praying for? That your father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer done in secret is dependent alone on God to hear and answer and reward. This is what faith looks like. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. And without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, prayer is an example of that, right? Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To draw near in prayer, looking for his reward, him alone. What duplicity can there be? Who would waste their time in secret prayer? If they were not calling out on God, who alone sees, to act, to move, to reward. That takes faith. Such prayer shows genuine devotion, extended prayer done in secret. But conversely, as we've reasoned then, is it faith if you only pray when others see and hear? If your prayers always tend to be public, is that faith? Is it faith if you go time out of mind without even praying? Is that dependence on God? Is that trust in him? For that kind of devotion, that kind of religion appears like one who sees much more the things on earth than they do the people and things of heaven. The concerns of God. 
Our prayerlessness is faithlessness that lives like this earth is all there is. But being good Christian folks, as we tend to be at Grace Bible, and I know you are here too, we know that's not the right answer. And so at least when others prompt us or we know others are looking or we might be held accountable, we're going to pray. But this is where many of us struggle. This is where the hypocrisy can creep in unknowingly. Because first of all, understand Jesus does not condemn public prayer. Jesus prayed in public. You'll see the church, what follows, pray publicly and corporately. But again, it's about one's attitude. For we will pray before others, whether it's at a meal shortly here after lunch. I know we're all waiting. Whether it's in Bible study, you might pray. You might pray in front of the church or with your family. But here's the seduction of pride at work such that we are too easily maybe focused on how we sound, what words we use, how many mm mm-hmm we get when we're praying from others, then we are concerned about talking and depending on our Father who is in heaven. And the solution is not avoid all public prayer. Again, it's part of the church life to pray together. But take Jesus' counsel to heart here strengthen the genuineness of your public prayer by devoting yourself through private prayer. Does this make sense? Don't be like that struggling married couple, right? Who once they go out in public, they know how to feign affection for one another. They know how to smile. They know how to hold hands. They know how to play the part and say, we're doing fine. But in reality at home, they're very cold to one another. And it shows when they are alone. By analogy, instead of letting your prayers before others, here's what we should do. Let your prayers before others be the overflow of your private prayer. If we are little in private secret prayer, your public prayers then are going to seem very foreign to you. They're going to be strange. Why? Because they are. You're going to feel like you're faking it. And so the call is here, stop faking it and start praying and start when no one else sees. For then it's just God and your heart to deal with. Look to him too for that reward. All right, the final test now comes to this question. Are you willing to fast only if God knows? Are you willing to fast only if God knows? Verses 16 to 18. So just unfolding in the text, Jesus takes an aside here in verses 7 through 15 to talk more and instruct more on prayer. But we're going to skip that kind of prayer parenthesis to focus and keep the theme of hypocritical worship. Because you'll see this unfolds in verses 16 to 18, much like everything else we've been reading. And it's this question, will you fast if only God knows? Now, fasting among evangelicals or even among our culture has become more popular, especially as a diet strategy. This is not about a diet strategy. Okay. The Judaism of Jesus' day were preoccupied with fasting. For, for example, John the Baptist's disciples, they're going to go later and ask Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees, the other Jewish leaders, pray but your dis- or fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus, what's up with this? Indeed, fasting, refraining from food to focus on God was a fundamental part of the life of worship. As God even told Israel to fast on certain occasions, namely on the Day of Atonement, 
there in Leviticus chapter 16. And there fasting is understood as a way to humble oneself before God. On the day of atonement, it's this fasting represented this outward humbling, bringing low of yourself because of your sin. When you pleaded with God to atone, to give forgiveness. And even later, as Jesus explains, as he's explaining why his disciples didn't fast like other Jews then, he still said this in Matthew 9, 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they, his disciples, will fast. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's a sign of devotion associated with humility, humbling ourselves, confession, repentance, mourning, dependence. And so though Jesus explains his disciples don't yet fast, he comments here and assumes we will in verse 16 of chapter six. He says, and when you fast. So another practicing our righteousness. But when you do it, don't do it like the hypocrites. The same theme. Why? Because you can guess why. They fast so everyone else will see them. They'll see how gloomy, mournful, and cranky they are. When you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces and their fasting that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. The formula, the principles are all the same. Only the religious deed has changed. The hypocrites don't fast to humble themselves before God, but to raise their esteem and standing before others. This is really the height of religious bankruptcy. They twist righteous deeds of devotion and dependence on God and they twist them and turn them into ways to get glory and praise for themselves. So instead of making sure everyone knows you're fasting, King Jesus calls those in his kingdom to fast in a manner that does not at all draw attention to yourself. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, take care of yourself like normal that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, again, King Jesus is not after external conformity to some set of rituals. No, the kind of righteousness he works by his spirit in the heart, it goes way deeper than just the outside. He changes the heart. He unites the heart with a changed life of devotion. So that when you see the outside on a Christian, you see what you get. That's a true disciple. Such that when you hear a disciple praying, you hear him pray as he always and frequently does. Especially when others aren't looking. Such that you might catch a disciple being generous. Well, you're seeing a generous heart. Whether it gets acknowledged or no, they don't care. They do it to please God. Or you might find him fasting. And he doesn't do so so that you would think he's such a serious Christian or a better Christian than you. Frankly, this person just, he knows God exists. He knows he needs God. And he is just humbly calling on God for strength. Because that's what he typically does. Why? Because the heart has been changed. One's affections have been altered. There's been a conversion. The delight and prize of the heart has shifted from earth to Christ. And I think that's the context of the the father's full reward here that helps us properly hear what comes next in this text. Look there as it follows verses 19 through 21 of chapter six. 
So in light of all of this, he's been talking about the reward from the father. Then he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. C.S. Lewis so profoundly said, we are just far too easily pleased. Being content with trinkets and fleeting pleasures are the empty praises of men. When God, through Christ, offers us himself, the greatest treasure beyond all comparison. Indeed, this is the gift of the gospel. This is what the good news we talk about as Christians provides. It provides Christ, doesn't it? God himself, the reward, the very gift of reconciliation with God, peace with God through the sin-defeating death of Jesus. This is what we celebrate. This is what we rejoice in. Do you know this peace? Do you have such a hope? If you wonder, in Christ, you can have it. He's not stingy with this, with himself. And you don't have to change the outside first. You don't have to go to the membership class first. You don't have to walk any aisle. You don't have to get cleaned up. Jesus just changes you first from the inside out. And it starts with humbly calling on him for mercy. To forgive you. To show you mercy. That his death was enough to deal with all your sin. All your fakery, perhaps. All your hypocrisy. All your corruption. All your idolatry. That call of humble faith will be greatly you could say it from the text, rewarded. Not merited, but graced. And my brothers and sisters, by faith, I know we share this faith in Christ, but the call for us is may we not lose sight of it, that Christ is our treasure, such that when you see him, when you really perceive him in the gospel by faith, when you see that he loved you when you didn't deserve it, when you see that he died to make you his own, when you see the love and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he becomes your delight, your longing, your treasure, you long to be with him. And so that's why we give. Because we know his love first. We've seen it in the gospel. That's why we give. That's why we give sacrificially like he did. That's why we pray. Because we love him. We want to talk and commune with our father in heaven through the death of Jesus. That's why we fast, because we were, want to remind our body that I need something more than food. I don't live by bread alone. I live by the word of God in Christ. And a clear view of Christ, a clear view of that reward with him forever, that's going to move you to set your heart in heaven. And that's going to move you away from hypocrisy and into genuine worship. This is why Paul tells us, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you're united with him by faith, you have been. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. May we not lose sight of our Jesus, for if we can see him aright, where else would we go? Let's pray for this.
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us. That you would forgive us for our worship that's been divided, that's been unworthy of you, that has been, that has not been pure. And yet we rejoice and give thanks because you are merciful. That even our stained and troubled worship is hidden in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, This is our great delight in our worship and may we not lose sight of it. May we not lose sight of the reward you've given us, namely in yourself, to enjoy you more and more forever. May we be very careful about being praised by men, doing righteous things to be seen by them. Rather, may we let our good works shine that they would glorify you. May we, we always be pointing you to the one who shows mercy to sinners. That's what we need and that's what we rejoice in. It's in you. Do that for your glory, we pray. Amen.